It has never been easier to start a new business that reaches millions of customers. And now people are creating amazing startups outside of Silicon Valley. But starting a company doesn't equal success. In this podcast, we dive into how founders across the southeastern United States are succeeding, why they fail, and everything in between. Welcome to Startup Pivot Scale. In 2014, a new social media exploded into the market. This new company allowed anyone to anonymously post messages with the world. Later that year, the founders of Yik Yak had raised a total of $73 million in venture funding. However, by early 2015, the end began. The company once valued between $300 and $400 million began to crumble. At its high point, Yik Yak had an estimated 2 million downloads, but by September 2016, it was down to below 200,000 downloads. By the end of 2016, they had laid off 60% of their employees and eventually shut down the entire operation. Yik Yak sold their company to Stripe for $1 million. However, you'll be excited to learn that Yak is back and a new company purchased the rights to redevelop the app in February 2021. Will it succeed this time? Or will they follow the same disastrous path? And how does investment help, hurt, and play a role into the success of companies just like Yik Yak? So, do you all think that investment is broken? I'm gonna say yes and no. Depending on who you are and where you fall, investment is works for you or it doesn't um, in terms of like, does your company need it? Um, can you bootstrap? Uh, if you can't bootstrap, how do you get to the point where you can get that investment? And then do you fall into the type of company that is, found, is funded by VC groups? Um, and based on where you fall in all of that, yes, investment can work. And in, in many cases, it does not. Yeah, I'm, I mean, that's fair. I, I really think a lot of businesses think they want investment. They are set up and they're trying to go after investment. And they're either not ready or they never will be. And so I think those are companies that really need to reconsider and think and truly understand the investment world before they pursue it. Um, but with Yik Yak especially, I, I just have a hard time seeing how that was ever going to be a success. I just, I, I just struggle with it. And even with it coming back, I, I just don't. I, maybe I'm just old enough now that I don't get the new social medias. And that, that's very possible. But there seem to be some fun, fundamental issues. I mean, it didn't seem like they had a lot of problem raising the money. They were able to quickly raise a couple million dollars with an idea, then another 10 million, and then another 60 million, all within a couple years. So they had all the money in the world, and yet less time to raise the money, the company pretty much went down downhill. Yeah, I think it followed the growth at all costs model, where you burn money to capture the market, then you figure out to monetize later, mm -hmm. and that never happened for them. Yeah, well, I, but I also think they raised, they were good at raising money, clearly. And they jumped on the kind of social media bandwagon at a time where that was still, you know, we uh, tail end of Facebook, people are unsure, we're starting to see a new age of social media come out. And I, I think they were able to raise money because of that. But the end result really came back down to some of those fundamental flaws. Yik Yak really, it wasn't the money that took it down by any means. And there was cyberbullying, there were anonymous bomb threats being posted to schools through it. I mean, there were all kinds of issues. But kind of going back to your, your topic, they were trying to blitz scale at all costs meant that they were growing, but they were never actually paying attention and solving the core problems. And I would argue, I'd ask what you guys think, what was the core value of Yik Yak? Like what problem was it solving and why did people really care? I think uh, having been a member of the internet for a while, they were trying to do to anonymous boards what Facebook did to forms basically, where you're creating an anonymous social media platform, those are popular on the internet in a Facebook style way, but they didn't realize that they're bringing all the problems of that anonymous world into social media, and I think that's what caught them. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think it's, it sounds like a cool idea, right? Like, you're, it's an anonymous way to con connect with your community to understand maybe what's the state of your community, what are the cool things going on, and 
whatnot, but it just wasn't thought through all the way. And, you know, with every solution, there's going to be other problems. And if you can't, you know, mitigate those problems to a level where your solution really makes sense and something to move forward with, then those problems are just going to keep getting worse and worse as you pursue that one, you know. Absolutely. Thing, so. Yeah, it goes right back to like, there's all those forums that are anonymous out there, like, you know, at 4chan and all these other things. I mean, even Reddit, you still have an account, you still have some sort of connectivity, and you have a profile that gains a name that you can ban. And, True. You know, Reddit's even kind of more like the Facebook forum kind of group, right? Where Facebook kind of came from that, and, well, not came from that, but followed a different model. Where this was just 4chan, but with, you know, just posting on a social yeah. media. Yeah. Like, how, how do you not know that's not going to go well? Like if, if you just say, here's the internet, if you've been around the internet at all for any length of time, you know anonymous access can be really bad and dangerous, and now you're going to connect all these kids and adults and everything else anonymously? Of course somebody's going to post bomb threats and dumb stuff. Yeah. And it, it just, they never focused on the core value they were bringing. I think they focused on how many users they could get. They focused on how fast they could grow and you know the traction side of everything, but they did not, in my opinion, focus on the value of the product. But if you think about it, when you focus on traction, blitz scaling, growth, you know, just you know, scale by all means necessary, who loves that? Investors. Investors love that. It's built for they built that for investors. It was built to attract capital. And so I go back to isn't that the fundamental problem? Yeah, and I was going to ask you, so who's, whose fault is it? Is it the entrepreneur's fault? Is it the investor's fault? Is it shared blame? I mean, I, would think, I mean, they had some, <laughs> they had some high profile investors, um, you know, big venture companies and VCs, and you would think they would have some experience to be able to guide these entrepreneurs to avoid some of these mistakes, right? But if they're on the hype, you know, I mean... Well, from my perspective, especially if you're like a seed round series A and you jump into a fast-growing company, your goal is only to get it to the next round so you can get your exit, your money, and go out, possibly. And the entrepreneur's eyes, for them, it's cover of TechCrunch if you're one of the fastest-growing companies by valuation. And it could be an ego thing instead of sitting down and working out the model where we're now seeing... What's called what's it growth? It's growth hacking, or I forget the exact term. Uh, new ones, unicorn farming. Yeah, unicorn yeah. farming. Okay. Uh, <laughs> but to that topic, though, I think even before unicorn, we go to unicorn farming, which is a real pet peeve. <laughs> I'm going to get on my soapbox on that one for sure. I would actually do, answer your question and say that it is definitely an entrepreneur's fault as a whole. Like they are, it's at the end of the day, it is their company to you know, grow or fail with. Like they have to make all the indecisions. I mean, it's. It's all up to them. And, but at the same time, I think the system and I, the venture capital world, I truly think is broken. And if you think about it, the culture of it is they did everything right in their minds. And I'm sure when they propose this and they're pitching it and they have these great traction numbers and everything seems exciting, all the investors are like, yeah, we've got a winner. It's you know, really taken off. They raise more money and it still grows and grows. They get to $73 million and they're at... 2 million downloads. I mean, going from nothing to 2 million in just a couple of years is huge, right? So when you look at by all the terms that investment judges this by, they have done everything right. But that is what the problem is, is what they did right is not actually correct. That's all superficial. It's all basically bullshit in the end. But that's what everybody's celebrating. And so I would actually blame the investors heavily too because they've helped create this culture by investing in companies that that's what they care about has led to problems like this, which is the perfect segue into unicorn farming. <laughs> because that's that's the logical next step. Get on step. your soapbox. All right, I will. <laughs> but just really what, what unicorn farming is, is that you know, and Uber is a great example of this. A lot of other companies are. And it's really simple. It's just you go out, you have a strong idea, and you pitch your idea to get initial funding. With that initial funding, you use a lot of that and a lot of your time resources to find a well-known and respected investor. You use that investor to go out in his context. Part of his job is to find additional well-known investors. And you do this three or four times. And then less than a year after you've raised and got the right people on there, you're now valued at a billion dollars in less than a year. And you're a unicorn. Woohoo! What do you have to show for it? I know. But when did you work on your product? When did you do anything? Like All you did is raise a bunch of money and get other people to raise money. I look at Theranos. We're in the middle of the Theranos trial. And I think we should talk about that fully in another episode. But... 
You know, they, that's exactly what she did. And that's, she was rewarded for that. And that's got her off the ground. And so if you have that capability, part of me thinks, why wouldn't you try to do that? Because that at least gets you the money. But at the same time, it's just so stupid. Because at the end of the day, you have Uber, who's worth absolutely nothing, really. They have, they're just nothing but raise after raise after raise. And I have no idea how they're ever going to become solvent. Mm-hmm. And they're just, but they have so much capital, it doesn't matter. Yeah, that's very true. Mm-hmm. And Clubhouse, another great example. Clubhouse, very similar to Yik Yak, skyrockets in 2021 or 20, I guess it was 2020, I think, when they skyrocketed during the pandemic shutdown, everybody's bored sitting at home. And then after a little while, nobody cares anymore because it doesn't have any core value. Mm-hmm. And so now it's starting to tank, but they've raised so much money that they can just, I mean, they could be a kind of grocery delivery service with the amount of money they have. I mean, they could literally do whatever they want. They could become a real estate company and make money. Like, at this point, it's kind of hard for them necessarily to screw up and go under for the you know, next 10 to 20 years. But what are they going to do? It sure isn't going to be Clubhouse mm-hmm. if they're smart. <laughs> anyway, off the soapbox. <laughs> yeah, yeah it's, it's, I mean, it's conflicting because as an entrepreneur who's new to all this, you understand whatever you need to do the first thing you know is just based on these stories and stuff that you hear is that you need to raise money, right? And so no matter how passionate you are about the product, if you don't have that right influence in your life to say, hey, you need to focus on making sure the product is everything it needs to be and you need to have a plan for the product, how you're going to develop it, how are you going to make it, what it needs to be and what's the future going to look like, your thought is always going to be like, well, I need to raise money to do anything I want to do. And then once you get on this train of raising money, you're like, oh, well, now, like, what do I do next? You know, I don't know what to do next, but I know I'm going to need more money. And then you just, like you said, you fall into this trap and it just becomes about raising money. And it started out as a passion for developing a product, but that gets lost in this raising money hype that is all around us. And so... Don't want a down round. <laughs> yeah, and you don't want a down round and all this sort of stuff. But like, I feel like, you know... I think there is value for to an entrepreneur to have a, uh, a sophisticated investor on board. But I think, you know, it needs to be the right investor and the right partner. Like there's, you don't want to, you know, you may have someone put, be willing to put in $20 million, but if that person doesn't believe in your vision or has a very different way of doing things that you don't agree with, don't take that money because the wrong money is going to really hurt you and put you down the wrong path. And so, um, you know, like for us, I'm very grateful for all our investors and we wouldn't have been able to get where we are without having the right partners put in the money to make sure the product can be everything it can be. But like, I just think like we need to, as a group in a community, bring more awareness to like creating the right business and product roadmap so that when you go out and raise the money if you end up becoming a billion dollar company you have some backing to it you know on the choosing the investor side one of my advisors told me he's like it's like picking a business partner it's like you got to go you got to talk to them figure out if they're the right fit if they have the network you need if not that type of thing and so knowing when as when to go get the investments like a lot of people will say pouring and getting investments like dropping rocket fuel on a burning engine if it's not aimed the right way they're going to go really fast <laughs> but yep, maybe, maybe not the right direction maybe really fast straight at the ground right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. but, but i like what you guys are saying because it it's easy not easy that's one big myth there's no. no way it's not easy to raise money no matter what you do but it is easy to get caught up in the idea that you have to raise money. And I'd first say, do you really need to raise money? Or, or even if you do, do you have to raise it from a, a venture capital group? It would be so much better to find somebody in your market that has a lot of money to partner with them. They're going to use your product or service and they could be your first investor as an angel or friends and family round, any possible way. I, I was talking to one startup and they were you know, pitching it what they needed. And I kept asking why, why, why? And they needed... Uh, I think $22,000 to build some sort of prototype. And I kept saying, why don't you get $22,000 instead of getting an investor? And they kept saying, well, how are you going to do that? I'm like, well, if you work at Walmart or if you work at McDonald's for an entire year, you'll get $22,000. Yeah. 
<laughs> and they were just appalled. And they were like, wow, I'm not going to work at Walmart. I'm not going to work at McDonald's. Yeah. And I just look at that and I hear that. I'm like, well, you don't really want $22,000 to do this. But yet you're going to go out and raise something small like $22,000, learn, lose a great stake in your business, and jump into this VC world or angel world. And, and in all reality, you're just not even going to raise the $22,000 to start with. But it's a weird mindset to think you have that. But everyone around you is talking about it. Economic development people are saying, oh, we need access to early stage capital. Mm -hmm. And I always ask, what is early stage capital? And rarely do they actually answer that. It's, oh, well, you know, we need to find money for companies. Like, yeah, well, which companies? And it's, oh, you know, early stage companies. Such as, you know, companies that need money. I'm like, well, every company needs money. I mean, it's a weird <laughs> statement, but it's like this blanket statement of, oh, you need to raise money. Like, no, you don't. MailChimp right. just got acquired for 12 Billion dollars. The emailing the thing. Yeah, they, their founders never gave up a single share. No. And yet they raised that all, all the way up to $12 billion exit. Mm -hmm. Like, can you imagine? And they didn't even have to sell it. They could have just kept the money, but I, yeah. I, I would sell it way, way, way before it got <laughs> you to a billion dollars. Sold it $40 million. Oh, I know. Yeah, that's, <laughs> that is my number. <laughs> I will never be a billionaire because I would sell out way too fast. Yeah. Uh, also, too, is like another thing, um, especially being a black founder, is like where it's broken is. Black and Latino founders, even women-founded uh, startups, get less than 3% of all VC funds every year. And so, yes, I would like to get funding, and yes, I'm working on funding, but in the back of my mind, it's like, I need to figure out where I can get grants, where I can get that help to get myself to a positive cash flow company, and then grow in a traditional sense, because from the pure statistics numbers, I'm not falling into that pattern match where VC firms are like, oh, he's not this demographic from this school, from this location, mm -hmm. so we're not going to give him money. And that's one of the things, that's a topic I know that sort of runs under the tech scene. Um, it's coming up more now, but in terms of who, where the money goes, who gets that money, and that type of thing. And I've seen a lot of different programs come out to try to address that. Do you feel like that's making an impact yet? It is. Um, this year, I know it's improved. So like for black founded companies, it's quadrupled over 2020, which was, and which was in a, still an abysmal year. Mm -hmm. Four times 1.2 is still low. <laughs> Percent yeah, still low. Sure. Uh, you know, um, and more money went out this year to startups in general. It was like $141 billion in the first half of 2021, uh, roughly there. Uh, Women-founded startups got about 2.3% of that. Black-founded got like 1.5, Latino 1.3. Uh, numbers are close to that. But again, if, when you're talking about is the model broken and you're seeing the lion's share of the money not go to certain groups and then people are like, hey, these groups don't create startups and you have to ask the question, how does that money distribution affect the whole overall conversation and then how do you fix that yeah. so you can get more funding into those demographics. Yeah, that's a whole nother part yeah. of it that I, you know, to be honest, I never really thought of. I guess my, I've always been a little bit naive when it comes to that because until last year when a lot of this stuff was just like forced onto me and I really started thinking about things because my co-founder is a woman and we're both, you know, Asian people of color and stuff. And I always thought everything in my life, I always thought that if I did well, that I would be rewarded for being good at what I did or, you know, my merits. And now I'm starting to think that were, were there times that if we were both white males, would we have gotten funded easier and you know is it because of this that you know we've had a tougher time or a tough time or whatever in some areas and it's just like it's it's weird it's like eye-opening to think about because I never really saw it that way but it, it's true it's real there's a reality to it and it's kind of I don't know it's kind of crappy to think about when you get into it but that's like a whole nother side of this and like large VCs and stuff, it'd be really, I don't know the numbers, but it'd be interesting to see, you know, in their portfolio, how many of the founders and entrepreneurs are uh, coming from a diverse background. I know Crunchbase is now tracking those numbers pretty well. It's just that you got to pay for it. <laughs> <laughs> and, and what startup is that? <laughs> well, 
on that point, and I am definitely the token white guy here, and, <laughs> uh, but I, in my experience with the investment side, it is a lot of um, older white men. That is the demographic of the investment world, and there are things changing that. We've seen like the Jump Fund, they're partially based out of Chattanooga, Tennessee, and they invest only in female founders. And we're seeing programs like that, and I, I think the best perspective I've had to see seeing that go down was that I was the fourth company I was, sorry, third company I was involved in uh, was a company out of Raleigh, North Carolina. It was a new startup, and I got in more as a kind of the CTO role to some degree, but as just a 10% stake in the company, um, still getting you know, paid an hourly wage for it. And it was a black founder that you know, I really liked the guy, still like the guy. He, he was just a really, he was a hustler. You know, he was a student or ex-student athlete in college uh, for a division or Big Ten school. And it, it was just a really exciting company. I actually was working on something else and I gave up that idea and ended up joining him uh, while we were in a Google Next for Entrepreneurship program out of Raleigh. And he had met other people and was trying to raise money to build this app. I don't want to go too much into what it was because it, it would be very easy to Google search it and it wouldn't be fair to the people involved. <laughs> you will understand in a second why I'm not going to re reveal that yet. You know, the founder, he found a co-founder and they were two uh, people of color and they ended up getting connected to some different people to raise money. And I, looking back, I do think that race played a role in a positive way to help him get money. He found a group that was willing to invest in them. And the other guy on multiple calls said he was excited to invest in a software company uh, that was owned and run by black founders. And I, I thought that was kind of a cool thing to be part of at the time. Now, I, I do think the standards, and it's not fair, but I do think the standards for companies that are in that space are even higher. Because if it goes bad, people then, all those, mm -hmm. you know, subjective and all these other things of saying, oh, this, you know, they're, they're not worth investing in. All these bad thoughts and bad ideals creep in. And I don't feel like other startups are held to that same standard. If you fail, it's like, oh, okay, we'll try again. And if it's possibly a black founder, the mindset sometimes can be, oh, I don't, I don't know if this program's gonna work. And that, that's crap, like it shouldn't be that way. Uh, but this company was very, very interesting. And I, I think we were talking about early stage startups mm -hmm. and when it goes wrong. Yes. This is a company that tried to raise and they did raise way too early. Mm -hmm. And it started with uh, the co-founder was an MBA student. I'm not historically a great fan of MBA co-founders. They tend to want to live a corporate life. <laughs> and it just, uh, the startups I've worked with and mentored, man, that could be a mess. Right. It was a mess in this point. And a long story short, they, his mother-in-law, well, I call this the Jerry Springer of startups that I got to be part of. <laughs> <laughs> and the, I mean, it really was. The co-founder was basically saying, oh, I need a new car and taking money out of the company account and using it for a down payment. Then he decided he needed a new apartment and just took the money and put his oh, deposit down. Didn't tell the co-founder. All of a sudden, the bank, he thought somebody had like robbed him <laughs> wow. or something went wrong in the app. And, and then, then they did raise $75,000 from uh, this other investor. Oh, sorry. They raised $9,000 from the co-founder's mother-in-law, who was a very wealthy individual and wanted to be part of it. They took the money, but didn't really do a contract or deal or anything. And then they spent all the money, basically, to rent and a down payment. And they went back and uh, she said, well, I want 9%. So for $9,000, she got 9%, which is extremely wow. high, right? <laughs> and at that point, what do you do? Wow. Like, you have no agreement. You already spent the money. You're like, okay. Well, then yeah. luckily they raised 75000 from another investor. And that guy was good. Uh, but he brought on another person involved in that. And the deal of that, though, was they had to use their lawyer. Uh, this other guy, this third party is a lawyer. And at one point, the lawyer was calling the investors. The lawyer that represented the company was calling the investors and having conversations with them and then billing the company without the company asking for that, oh. which is illegal. Should not be happening. And then they were getting bills for thousands of dollars for all these conversations they were having they did not authorize. And you know, I didn't know about any of this. Well, then uh, just the, the crescendo of it all was that the co-founder got caught cheating on his fiance, which was while staying at his mother-in-law's house, which was the investor that gave him $9,000. And he's, in his statement, this all came out on a board meeting call. <laughs> she was really what? short and mad. And then she finally she broke down and just like yelled at him and said, oh, you know, everybody should know what you did. And she like, tells us all this. And I'm going like, what? <laughs> and I'm like, what is going on, right? And then... <laughs> Um, then I found out about, we were going to bring up the whole topic was bringing up the, the lawyer illegally billing and we got another lawyer to send a letter to say, hey, this is illegal, yeah. give us our money back. <laughs> uh, 
It's all this goes down. Sounds everyone's like yelling. Every, oh, it does. <laughs> everyone's screaming and yelling at each other. And it ends up with the, oh, well, my favorite was the NBA uh, co-founder. His excuse for cheating on her and all that stuff was that, oh, but, you know, his, his fiance cheated on him first. <laughs> I was just waiting for the security what? guy to come, like, separate him on the call. <laughs> Steve, Steve, Steve. But, uh, it, you know, all this goes down. And then what was interesting to me was for the next few, like, months, nobody knew what was happening. And I eventually was getting phone calls from investors calling me, asking me what was going on. And I was mm-hmm. like, why are you calling me? <laughs> I'm just developing an app. Like, I, I am not involved in any of this stuff. I'm not investment. I'm not, you know, cheating on anybody. You guys, you know, figure out that on your own. That's not really a company issue. And, uh, but why do you call a CEO? And it went on for months of them calling and like pseudo yelling at me until I was yelling back at them. Like, look, I have no idea. Why would I know? Yeah. And they weren't even yelling at me. They were just yelling about it to me. But here's the amazing part of the story though. All this goes down. Company goes under. They disband. You know, they file everything at um, dissolution agreement and everything else. It all goes. They take what money they had left over. Pay back the investors the best they can. And the bigger investor that had the majority of the $75,000 went to the CEO and said, hey, that was a huge mess. And he was one of the ones yelling. He was very upset, as you would imagine. He went to the CEO and said, look, this was not you know, the best company. This did not go well. There's, you have a lot to learn. Why don't you come work for me at my software development company and come be a project manager so you can learn how to do this? And so after all of that, after all the money, all the yelling and how they were trying to control things and calling me and calling everyone else, his next reaction was to say, I like the CEO, I'm going to pull him under my wing and I'm going to teach him to do better. That blew my mind. So even at the Jerry Springer startups, there was still a pretty good ending. But you don't want to get into that. We spent months and months yelling and fighting. Well, not me, just listening. <laughs> I was listening to stupid conversations. Like I was literally might as well turn on Jerry Springer. It would have been the same at these two, three hour board meetings that were just stupid, right? And I just knew the company was dead. And I was just waiting to make my exit and just kind of try to like not, not leave them hanging, but hand it off to somebody. They're trying to find somebody else, but they never could. They never could yeah. make it a single step further because when their, their investment was too early and it went bad yeah. and they hadn't solved all the issues, it completely just froze the company. They could not move or do anything at all. Right. So I have a question for you all. When is, the, when is it too early to raise investment? What do you think, David? <laughs> oh, I always have opinions on this. <laughs> I, I really think that too many times startups focus on raising money too early. There's almost a culture of it. And when you're in the entrepreneurial support space, I hear that and local government, other groups always saying, oh, there's not enough early stage capital. And, and in reality, that early stage capital that you hear all the stories of where they pitch an idea and they just got money just for an idea stage, it's just really rare. Uh, the best money that kind of comes in that early is friends and family or somebody that might be in your market that has a you know, lot to gain from that. And they may want to you know, give you some money to see this happen because they can see how big it could be. Um, and then that's kind of, the, to my opinion, the early stage money you should go after if you need money. But I think in most cases, you don't need money. Like if you have a medical device, sure, you're not going to get through FDA bootstrapping and not having any cash. But if you're looking to start an app or a service, you've got to figure a lot of that stuff out beforehand so that you're putting fuel on a fire, not trying to light the match with an investor. So you're telling me our app can't do back alley surgeries and be like, it's just this device version? No. I mean, I mean, you can. Well, not. <laughs> I don't think it's going to go very well. record and say we will not be doing that. <laughs> um, what do you think I, is the right time? I think it's the right time to raise money when you know exactly what you're going to do with the money, why you need the money, um, and what, what you're going to get out of it in terms of milestones, value increases, and so on. Like, we were, you know, pretty fortunate, I feel like, because very early on, the advisors we had around Atlanta and Georgia Tech, they told us that before you go out and raise any money, you need to gather quotes, um, estimates, things like that to show, to really have a good basis for how much money you need, how much you need, you'll be, um, you'll be needing to raise over the next like six months, year, whatever. And so we've always tried to put together a good budget for each department of the company and say that this is how much money we need and this is why we need the money and this is what we're going to be able to accomplish with the money. And so, you know, it's a, it takes a little bit more time to do that and a lot more thought to do that. but. 
I think it's just better for the investors as well as for the company because that way you don't end up raising too little and then you go back and you say, well, I need more money and I wasn't able to accomplish what I wanted to accomplish. And, you know, you may have a down round or something like that, or you don't end up raising so much money and giving away so much of your company either when you didn't need all that money to meet some uh, milestones pretty quickly that could raise your valuation and, you know, um, you could raise more money for less of the company later on, if that makes sense. And I think the, you know, going into all of that, like, as you're hearing him talk about that, like, there is, he's so far along, there's a, a plan for not just, oh, how do I get this thing started? It's how do I take this to that next level? And I think if you're not thinking about that, then you're, you're really at a risk of saying, oh, I need $50,000 to make this app a, a thing. And you think, oh, I'm ready to raise this money. So you do get the $50,000 and the app doesn't work. Or you have to, or maybe you need another $50,000 to even get the app that you thought was the right path. It's not even the right path that you needed to go even further. Right. Like those are problems that you're solving with money. You're not solving with creativity, creativity, building a team and doing things the right way. And at the end of the day, your valuation is going to be terrible. It's going to be very expensive money to raise. Plus, you're also either burning bridges or taking up resources that you could be using later if you don't, if you weren't just figuring those things out to start with. And so I'm a big fan of early, early stage, go find a technical co-founder, go out and work somewhere and you know, get the money to get your app built. I was mentoring a startup one time and they were, they said they got a quote for building their mobile app or his website, I forget what it was, and it was going to cost $22,000. And they were just appalled that it was going to cost that much. And being in that space, I understand that was actually a pretty decent deal. And his big statement was that he didn't have it. And he wasn't sure he needed some investor to give it to him. I'm like, $22,000. I don't know of, and he kept wanting to talk about venture firms. I don't know a firm that would invest that small. <laughs> like, if you go to a, like a VC firm or a fund and go, hey, we want to raise $22,000 for what, 3%? I don't even know how you, how you calculate that, right? But I made the point and I said, look, if you need $22,000, why don't you go get $22,000? You don't have to go get that from a VC. Why don't you just go work at McDonald's full-time for a while or even at nights and weekends, you will get the $22,000 and you'll pay it off and you can pay in installments even. And his statement was like, oh, I, I, I can't do that. I would never do that. And all I heard was, I don't want to make my startup a success. Instead, he wanted to lean on all money from somebody else. What do you think, Edwin? No, I agree. Um, it is one of those situations where raising, like getting that first initial capital, it is, like one of the things I've learned is every time I do more and more, I realize hindsight, I could have done this cheaper. Uh, <laughs> where- um, Less expensive. Less expensive. Not cheaper. Yes. <laughs> Difference between those two words. Okay, <laughs> good point, because- Especially with medical devices. Yes. yes. <laughs> and hiring a programmer in some sense. Where one, where I didn't go for the expertise when I first started in the very beginning. And then what I thought was a deal ended up costing me a lot more in the long run because the expertise I thought I was going for, although it was cheaper than the expertise, more expensive expertise, that expertise caused problems that ended up compounding. Technical debt's the term for our listeners, if you're wondering. And then also there was a lot that can be done, I say manually, like let's use Netflix. For example, in the early days, they were literally, well, they were getting the DVDs and mailing them out themselves. And then they built that platform after uh, to automate that. So, and even little things where instead of building out a whole platform, you just build a small section of the platform to test that and validate it. And then say, hey, here's what I have, here's what I want next. And then you can probably get a raise off of a validated concept where the investors are like, oh, it's not just an idea. They actually built a small subset, went out, validated, tested it. Here's the data back. We can see them getting it to the full size. So here's $100,000 to help them do that. So. Yeah, I think there's a lot of myths about investment and when you raise, and it's kind of glorified in the movies and TV. And I, I think you really got to stop and put yourself in the perspective of the investor. And you say, all right, if I am going to if you just assume you had $50,000 and that's all you had in your entire life 
And for whatever reason, you have to invest. And you're going to go broke when you give that money to somebody. And you say, you know what? I've got Edwin here and i got Arnab over here. I'm going to give one of them $50,000. I mean, I'm going to be broke, so this has to be the best chance of making me money. And I'm hoping that I'm going to take that 50 and turn that into $10,000, 10 times that. And so when you're evaluating people, you've got to think, who are you really going to invest in? If Edwin comes up to me and says, hey, I've got this great idea. And I really, you know, I've got a good marketing person. I've got this good person. I just need the money to build this product. And it's going to be $50,000. Mm-hmm. And the product's interesting. He's got his market research. Everything seems in order. Mm-hmm. But he hasn't built the product. He hasn't done that. And he, he's not a, he doesn't have a technical person on his team. So this is all hypothetical, first of all. <laughs> this is not true about Edwin's company or Arnab's. And Arnab's medical advice. But if he was the same thing, and he's like, yeah, I'm going to build this app. And I've done all this market research and everything else. And... I just use this no-code tool to prototype it to get it in the market to prove it's it's actually viable, but I really need fifty thousand dollars to build this product, mm-hmm. or I had this I hired these students to build this prototype. Like any of these little things, even if it barely works, who do I actually put that fifty thousand dollars into? I think hands down it goes to the person that actually has figured out a way against all odds when they don't have a technical background to get that prototype built. Because if I give him fifty thousand dollars, he's going to take that and do everything he can to make that work. And he's farther ahead. Yeah, I think it also shows that this team isn't necessarily dependent on having to raise investment to move forward or to bring on board an investor to know what comes next. You know, mm-hmm. so it's like this this team is going to find one way or another to keep making progress. And I need to get on board because, you know, I might be missing an opportunity for myself because they're going to make progress regardless. And mm-hmm. that makes it, you know, when it's that feeling of, you know. If I know you need me, I'm gonna play hard to get. But if you feel, if I feel like you don't need me, that's when I'm gonna jump on board. Yeah, it's kind of like a significant other. I don't want a real needy girlfriend. <laughs> my, my girlfriend or my wife now did not want a needy boyfriend. I'm sure, and so it was a good match. Yeah, but you don't want that. That's the same truth. I mean, yes. you want it to be a good fit that makes sense, and you both feel really good about it. So you're saying like finding an investor is like dating, huh? Yeah. I don't know. It's funny how marriage. <laughs> it is amazing how often that analogy is used because it's finding a co-founder is another marriage. Finding an investor is another marriage. Your first employees are like your children. There's all these funny like additions yeah. that get brought up all the time, and I have found it all to be very, very true though. So I have another question. Uh, speaking of valuations and things, how do you determine your valuation of your company? You just make it up. Price high and justified. I mean, we joke about that, but I know entrepreneurs who have given me an answer very similar to that. Like I've asked people who have raised money from like angel funds and stuff, and I asked, oh, well, had like what valuation did you raise this money on? And they would give me a valuation. And I was like, oh, okay, how did you come up with that? And he was just like, um, I don't know, it's just our best guess. <laughs> and that, like, that was like very odd for me because it's like that. I feel like you could get in a lot of trouble for doing that. Um, uh, with that, you know, so like, sure. I mean, like... it's just like, well, I'd say that because the way there are several ways I feel like you can justify your valuation, and there's things that people teach you in courses and stuff the Burkis scorecard, VC method, all these different ways. And I feel like, you know, to. To show your best efforts, to show that you know when someone is putting money in you, you're being as honest and truthful about the value of what they're getting for their money. You should be able to justify your valuation in a few different ways, like do the Burkis method, the scorecard method, the VC method, these other methods, and also like show them the work that you've done and all this to show like how if you think your your company is worth three million dollars or five million dollars. This is why, because all the numbers add up to something around that. I just feel like that's, you know, there's a lot of ways to do it, but. Yeah, I think, let me first state that we are legitimately joking about just making up your numbers. Yes. You shouldn't just pull it out <laughs> yeah. of thin air. Please I'm sure don't. people do, but that's, that is a terrible idea. But it, it's kind of like really early stage doing your financial projections. Like it, it seems insane, and I've never done my very first financial projections on any company and felt good about them. Because at the end of the day, I knew we were saying, oh, we could sell this many and get this many people paying, and this is our recurring revenue, these are our costs, and this is what we're going to make in one, three, and five years. And it's like, what? Like, how would we ever possibly know that? And the same thing is with evaluation. Like, there's no way to know. But having some, a rhyme to your reason, and, I, and it sounds bad, but it's still, you are telling a good story, and it should be as plausible and based on calculations as possible. 
But even the Burkus method, all these other, like scorecard, all these things that have happened, it gets easier and better and better the longer you go. And as you have revenue and you actually have a business growing, but early on, like you're doing best guesses. I mean, you really are. Even that method, they, and your investors are doing the same thing because they have no basis to know how it's going to go. So they're doing the best calculations they can, but it is still a best guess at the end of the day. It is a best guess, but it's somewhat justified. I mean, it's like you're, you've done some research, you've looked at comparables or... You sure, would think, you know, value, and you can't, and like, it's tough. Didn't, didn't but Reed just Austin talk about like they did theirs while drinking wine one night? Oh, I'm sure. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah <laughs> but, like, if I, I could say, uh, on average, as a software engineer, I would charge 125 an hour for everything we do. So I could say every hour I spend coding is $125,000. And all of the hours I've spent coding on my thing, that sweat, sweat equity that f- factors in, I could easily be into like the millions of dollars of my own product, but I have not charged and nor would I go into trying to charge or value my work at that level when I'm calculating that. And so right there, I'm taking a known value and going, nope, that doesn't make sense for the company. I'm not going to incorporate that exactly because that would actually hurt me or could hurt me and it could help me or nobody's going to believe me. Yeah. And so it's this weird thing where you're making these very subjective decisions and then trying to add this like, science to it and it's it's, it's weird. an art it is an art, art. It's, it's an art. art and art is not usually what you want to do with your financials i'm very artistic with my taxes <laughs> everyone would be like irs would be like i'm gonna check you out <laughs> right, right. right. <laughs> but I, I get what you're saying right i do agree with you i really do i you have to do the best you can and i think entrepreneurs are way too commonly saying they don't they don't really try hard enough to make a calculation out of it yeah. Well, like for us, like we look at our comparables, who's in our space, what have they raised, at mm-hmm. what levels, where are we compared right. to that? And then, uh, and basically f- from the limited experience I have, it's a negotiation. You'll come in and say, we value ourselves at this pre-money. The investor's like, well, I don't think so. We value at this pre-money, and you have that discussion mm-hmm. back and forth. Um, and at the end of the day, the valuation you wind up on is probably a compromise somewhere in the middle. Um, yeah, people are going to try to knock down your valuation just so they could get more of the company for whatever you're asking. But that's what I'm saying. Like the more you have research or math or whatever it is telling the story and the more you have that to back it up, it'll just be harder for them to knock your valuation down. So here's a question. They, yeah. We have a famous case going on right now having to do with valuations. <laughs> yeah. How did she justify her valuation when she had nothing to value? Oh, first of all, we're talking about the Theranos yes, case Theranos with Elizabeth case. Holmes. Yes. Yeah. Well, uh, that, that, I, I, do I need to get my soapbox box back out and start talking about <laughs> unicorn farming? Because she is the again the exact yeah, example of yeah. using famous uh, investors. Because she even had like known industry investors say no to her. Be like this is it, impossible. And then she went out and found famous investors to then in famous investment funds to then raise additional money. Yeah. People who weren't experts in the industry or the science mm-hmm. is like a lot of who she had on her board and stuff. Yeah. But so. uh, here's the real question on that though, even more so. If it worked by the end, would there be a trial today? No, there would not. No. She'd be a hair. I mean, she went out and yeah. said that people had cancer that didn't, people that didn't have cancer did. I mean, all these terrible tests went out and I, to me that's just appalling that that happened. But I would argue just what you're saying is if it worked, if the one drop of blood test could tell you these things, even after all those problems, even after lying to investors, she would be heralded as the next Steve Jobs. And I think that is a really interesting cultural piece. And that, you know, I think we could have a whole fake it to you, fake, the whole fake it to you, make it like episode on this, just because it is, to me, that's what's on trial. Yeah, yeah she defrauded fraud her investors, and she, I think she'll clearly be found guilty for that. But the reality is, fake it till you make it's really on trial here. And there's the good side of it. If you do pull it off and you can change the world, other entrepreneurs have done that and it's been successful. And then the other side is if you don't make it, are you liable? And should you be allowed to fake it till you make it on certain topics, certain things, or anything? And that's a really tough topic, too, because that fake it till you make it has somewhat yeah. built Silicon Valley. But this is exactly what you're risking. You turn out to be just like her if it doesn't work out. So it's, yeah. are you comfortable but no one has being ever in been her situation? For this. Yeah. 
They've been prosecuting. And again, if she hadn't just straight up lied about the financials to her investors, she probably wouldn't even be in court right now. They've been trying to find other ways to take her in. But an LLC or a corporation, they they are built to protect people to be able to take risks. Mm -hmm. You're able to do it. Being an incompetent CEO is protected by an LLC. You cannot be illegal. You cannot be doing things that are malicious towards a company. But if you if you get you know, this is a good lesson. If you get hundreds of thousands of dollars from your investors and you just run that company into the ground and you, but you're intentionally trying to do it, trying to be successful, you're not just pocketing the money, then you are protected by the LLC. So was she incompetent? Corporation. Or corporation, yeah, thank you. Was she incompetent or was she actually malicious? Well, I think that's yeah. a whole other discussion on Because that, at the end of the day, it's the board's responsibility, right? If you have an incompetent CEO and mm -hmm. you, there's been months or years where the company isn't doing like it needs to be, mm -hmm. then it's the board's responsibility to replace that person, mm -hmm. right? And so, you know, you can't blame the CEO after that if, yeah. if like you said, the CEO isn't doing whatever he or she can. Yeah. If they're lying about the numbers and things like that, that's a financial crime, yes. right? Like that makes sense. And that and those charges on her, I think, are just cut but dry. But the reason I brought her up is the case is that she defrauded her investors. But back to the valuation, mm -hmm. here's someone who got a one plus. How, what was Theranos value that? It was like ten billion or uh, something 10 like that. Ten billion, hundred billion. I mean, it was yeah. insane. I mean, it Very was, high. Yeah. Yeah. It, it didn't make any sense. But no, was, and then but it was the hottest thing of Silicon Valley at the time. But then the, the around that time was are tech companies overvalued? Is there are because I remember there were articles are are we in a tech bubble because yeah. we were having all these unicorn valuations yeah. way more than people thought that they should be. Well, if we're in a tech bubble, this is a really big long-lasting bubble. <laughs> They've been saying the tech bubble for a while, then COVID hits and the bubble grows, right? Yeah. I can bubble in some way to save the day. The stock market is like tanks. And yeah. I, I remember sitting there like, and this sounds weird, but I was like excited for, I'm not excited, I didn't want people to lose their homes, but like, I was I, I was in college in the 2008 financial crisis. And one of my friends that was a professor, I was in his office shortly after that, and he was looking at stocks and he was just throwing money into it. I remember AMD, I think it was like a dollar or two dollars oh, a share. Yeah. And he and he threw like two thousand dollars into that. Talk about the back beginning of COVID? No, no, in two thousand eight. Oh, after the financial crisis. Okay. So he put like two thousand dollars in that and then like pretty sure his college his kids graduated from college from that deal. <laughs> pretty sure that's what he said. But he put a lot of money into it. And so as I saw that same thing happen, I remember getting like kind of excited, like, oh, this is like that once in a lifetime, well I guess now twice in a lifetime moment. <laughs> yeah. But now I have a little bit of money I can put in the market. And so I'm like sitting there, I'd transfer all my money, I'm watching, watching, and then it's like the stocks just skyrocketed back in the tech sector. And that's everything I know. So I was like scrambling to buy some. And I mean, I did very well with it, but it was also like, what is going on, right? This is the yeah. financial crisis, the, the yeah. worst thing to happen since 2008. But the tech sector became so critical and needed that that carried the economy and really yeah. did. So, mm -hmm. so are they overvalued? I mean, Tesla, right? Yeah. That does not make sense. I still have Tesla stock. Because every time I discounted it, it went up. <laughs> but at the end of the day, Tesla, if you take all of the car companies in the United States and combine all of their prices together, it's still quite a heck of a lot less than Tesla. Mm -hmm. That doesn't make any sense. Those companies have been around for 100 years and they're still not valued very high. But it, it kind of warps your thinking of like, oh, you know, GE is worth like, what, $36 a share or something. Or if it gets to 36 it's way below that. Yeah. But it's, uh, if it got to $36 a share, that'd be a big win. Only yeah. Tesla and tech would go, oh, we are we don't even have a physical product. We have a digital service, and it's yeah. worth $500 a share. <laughs> I, I have a friend well, who works in uh, the uh, real estate space. I remember having those conversations with him about WeWork because their company's business model is sort of similar. And um, he was like, how is WeWork getting their valuation? And that whole thing happened. And he was like, huh, well, that explains that. Yeah. There's always so, a corrective force yeah, one way or another. One way or another. <laughs> I am not completely sure if we have answered all the questions on investment, but I think- <laughs> We probably caused a lot more. <laughs> yeah. you know, I think the, at the bottom line, investment is a, it is a critical piece to entrepreneurship and entrepreneurship communities, but I think it gets over relied on. I think it's almost a cop out to say, oh, we don't have enough investment capital, unless you have tons of companies that are just not able to get funding. I would argue the companies in Tennessee and even Northeast Tennessee even though it's not easy, and it never is, the ones that all had their stuff together, that were really ready for it, that were growing, that needed money, 
I've yet to see one that did not get funded. But I do see a lot of companies that are saying they can't get funding to build their app, to do their this, to get off the ground. Mm -hmm. And that part, I, I just disagree with that fundamentally, where I think you've got to figure out how to do that. And that is your first trial by fire to even qualify for investment. And you may not like hearing that, but that, that is what I'm seeing. And that is not new. You may have been in the 90s and early 2000s been able to get money out west and other areas where people just throw money at an idea, but they were never funds, or very rarely really funds, or they very rarely groups that would do that. And that movement hurt the investment world to now they're a lot more careful. I will say, I already have like my next idea down the line. And no way. No, 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 no. Entrepreneurs Shocking. always have like, oh, you're working on this. What's, what's the next 10? Yeah. You literally yeah. have like ideas upon ideas. But like I've already figured out like if I'm going to do that business idea, how to make the customers pay for it for me to build it rather than, mm -hmm. yeah, it's like, it's one of those things back to being scrappy and learning each iteration from get the gadgets to preservatives and Zen Hammer. It's like, how do I improve upon that start uh, on the next one. So that's one of the things, it's like, be creative. I was listening to um, another guy this morning, I'm blanking on his name right now, where he got the money to start his business. He's an artist, he created, a, he has a publishing company, and he was following somebody on Facebook. And to start his business, he just created a cover for this guy, posted it on his wall, and all his fans loved it. And they're like, when's your next book coming out? So the guy saw that, it's like, called that dude and he used that money to start his publishing company because the guy's like you made this cover now I gotta write a book so <laughs> yeah, let me pay you <laughs> uh, that's awesome yeah I mean that was well said I like you know we talked about we could we wouldn't be able to do a medical device company without investors and um, you know I'm grateful for our investors but there is a right time to raise investment and you know you just got to be you got to understand everything that comes along with that. You're, it's, it is like a marriage or a family or something. It's a, it's a real partnership. And so you want to make sure you pick the right investors. You want to make sure you're ready for it and you know what to do once you get that money. And you're not just doing it for the sake of raising the value of your company to hopefully have a billion dollar company in a couple months. So investment's just a hot topic. And, uh, it's something that, you know, do your research, figure it out. I, th I think we've all yeah. had our ups and downs with it, and yeah. it is something that is phenomenal when it works well. It can also be the Jerry Springer of startups, yes. as I mentioned before, if you don't do it well. And so it's, say, it's not I a game. When I retire, I do want to be an angel investor. So. You do? I, I do, actually. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm too stingy. I just feel like, oh, well, none of you are good enough for me. <laughs> I, I think it'd be fun to be in the investment space, too. We look forward to you joining us next time on Startup Pivot Scale. We'd also love to hear from you. Please consider leaving a review on your favorite podcasting platform. For episode transcriptions, past episodes, or to learn more about this podcast, connect with us at StartupPivotScale.com or at StartupPivotScale on social media. This podcast is brought to you by Founders Forge, a 501c3 nonprofit that is dedicated to the underdog entrepreneurs of the Appalachian Highlands and helping them on their startup journeys. We do this by holding high impact events, building a vibrant startup community, and through one-on-one -on -one coaching for startups. Learn more at foundersforge.com.